he says that they will refuse to serve until all British dogs are removed from Ireland. Welcome to The Irish at War. I'm your host, David Cummins. Today I'm talking with Dr. Connor McNamara on the Connacht Rangers mutiny that occurred 100 years ago just last week. If you are unfamiliar with Dr. McNamara, he was working in NUI Galway but is now currently lecturing in New York City. He's the author of various different books on Lee Mellows and contributed to the Atlas of the Irish Revolution. But first, I just want to say a major big thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who follows me on Twitter. Just this evening, I hit 19,000 followers, which is just incredible. Thank you so much. I can't believe it. For those of you who are just listening and don't know about the Twitter page, you can find me at Ireland Battles for daily tweets on Irish military history. You can also find me on Instagram at Ireland Battles also for tweets on Irish military history. And you can also find me on Patreon forward slash the Irish at war, where for as little as three euro a month, you can become a patron of this podcast, which would be absolutely incredible. Just three euro a month helps me to buy books, gain access to archives on other online materials. And in return for just three euro, you get extra content, longer detailed posts, as well as bonus material. Essentially, if you met me in a coffee shop, would you buy me a cup of tea and have a chat about history? That's all I'm asking. Just three euros a month. So if you're feeling generous, head on over to Patreon forward slash the Irish at war and you can become a patron there. But now let's get to the interview with Dr. Connor McNamara on the Connacht Rangers mutiny in India in 1920. So Dr. Connor McNamara, give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you do. Uh, thanks, uh, uh, David. Well, uh, I'm originally a Galway man from Athenry, but uh, I taught and worked at NUI Galway for a while and at the University of Notre Dame for a while, and actually at the National Library in the Archives uh, Department there also. So I've been doing a few different, uh, attached to a few different universities and institutions, but I'm in um, I've moved to America now, so I'm, I'm just just slid under the door four days before the the, the shutdown nice. in March. Uh, so I'm based in, uh, in New York now. Brilliant, brilliant. Lucky you got in just in before the door closed. Yeah. And as you were saying before, New York is a absolutely savage spot. So today we're going to be talking about the Connacht Rangers mutiny in India in 1920, the 100 years ago. So this being the centenary, so we thought it was pretty apt to have a conversation. So, tell us what actually happened in the mutiny itself. Yeah, well, I suppose to give a very uh, short outline of events, the mutiny uh, happens in the Punjab in northern Italy and in a neighbouring province on the foothills of the Himalayas. It's basically a refusal uh, by around 380 soldiers at its peak uh, to serve under their British officers. 
Uh, it's all uh, non-commissioned officers and privates who take part. A number of them are actually English and Scottish and perhaps one Welsh, uh, but they're overwhelmingly Irish. And their uh, ground arms is the military uh, term. They refuse to serve from Monday uh, the 28th of June uh, until later in the week when they're, they're arrested and imprisoned uh, in protest at British coercion in Ireland. Uh, they make their claims on Monday morning to their superior officers. Uh, first of all, uh, where the mutinies, it becomes turned, breaks out, is uh, Jalander, as the, as the Indians call it. Now, Jalander, as it appears in the British sources, uh, Wellington Barracks. Uh, station there. And this is kind of, it, it develops organically the mutiny. It's it's a protest, uh, a political protest essentially, and a peaceful one in its initial phase. Uh, it spreads from just four men on Monday morning uh, who hand themselves over to be arrested. And, uh, we can discuss some of those uh, as we go along. Uh, it spreads to their comrades who break them out of the barracks, prison, uh, they take over their barracks over the course of the week in um, Jullander. They hang the Irish tricolour, which I suppose is the most iconic image of, of the week. Uh, and they declare themselves essentially soldiers of the Republic uh, in protest at, at British actions in Ireland. It becomes a more serious protest then in many ways uh, during that week when they send two emissaries, uh, two privates in secret, uh, to go over 100 miles north up the mountains of the Himalayas to Solan camp, where a second detachment, uh, I should have said, these are all 1st uh, Battalion uh, Connock Rangers, and uh, they are from uh, ABC D companies. And uh, it's confined to that regiment, and uh, non-commissioned officers of that regiment. So at Solan, you have similar events, about 80 uh, Irish soldiers under the leadership of a James Daly from Tyrrell's Pass, uh, County Westmead, uh, they likewise throw off their, their the command of their officers in, in protest. Uh, the same aims. Uh, Daly's explicit uh, to his men that he says what their aim is to spread mutiny amongst other Irish regiments around the world. And this is an important point, that what he wants to do is for their protest to be registered in the media, the newspapers essentially, and that other Irish soldiers in other Irish regiments uh, would likewise refuse to serve in protest again at, at, at Irish actions, uh, actions in Ireland. Uh, the Black and Tans, of course, had a, started arriving in Ireland in the spring of 1920. Uh, what's interesting is most of their more infamous atrocities took place later in the year after the, the mutiny. Yeah. Uh, but Joseph Hawes is explicit. I mean, you have coercion acts, various... Uh, applied in Ireland, the banning, for instance, of football matches, uh, it becomes a big one in hurling matches, any ga large gatherings, essentially. Uh, and they're explicit that uh, it is the actions of the British administration in Ireland, rather necessarily, actually, than the Black and Tans at this point, uh, that they're mutinying uh, uh, because of. And so famously at Solon, Daly leads about 50 of his men, unarmed, armed with sticks and pike, well, not pikes, actually, uh, bayonets from their rifles, uh, to break into the barracks magazine where the weapons are held on the Thursday night and to arm themselves. And this is the first bloodshed of the mutiny where uh, two Irish soldiers are killed, uh, uh, Private Sears and Smith uh, from Loud and Mayo, respectively. And um, that kind of brings the mutiny to a shuddering halt. Uh, the following morning, 
all forces at both camps are arrested. Uh, they're imprisoned at Dagshai Prison under dreadful conditions. Over 400 men initially are, are kind of uh, are thoroughly uh, grilled and, and, and eventually the hardcore, about 100, are isolated from the main body of just under 400 who took part. And uh, they're court-martialed in August and September. They received very extreme sentences, even by the standards of the time. And uh, Daly's actually executed on the 2nd of, of November. Um, so it, it evolves and changes in its aims and in its form of protest, from what is a peaceful, basically, form of non-cooperation to something much more militant and much more ambitious uh, as the week progresses. So the aims were, uh, as Daly expressed it in Solon, to, to foment revolt in the British army. Uh, the fear on the British authorities' part actually was less about that it would spread across the vast uh, scale of the, the British Empire, but that would uh, spread to local Indian recruits mm. in, in the local forces, and that if they mutinied, it'd be infamous or, or, or infinitely more serious. Uh, so in that respect, the, the harsh sentences and the, and the executions reflect or the execution, reflects their determination uh, to stamp down anything that could actually trigger a rise in Indian nationalism, uh, rather than any particular fear, I would argue, uh, of Irish nationalism within the armed forces. Yeah, um, that was obviously a big, big fear that they had, that they didn't want to spark, especially uh, following the Amritsar massacre in uh, the year previous. They didn't want, because like the place was a hotbed already, you know, yeah. understandably, they didn't want the local Indian nationalists to, to, to kick off as well. I mean, I got, there's so many different avenues of questioning that I, I, I want to ask, but um, let's start with the, the most obvious. When it starts with the four men at the start, is it yes. just purely because of the political situation in Ireland? Is there? Is it because they don't get on well with the officers? Like, what's the what's the story there? Well, there's a couple of viewpoints on this. It's a good starting point in terms of of context and everything else. Um, the men themselves, uh, I suppose, two leaders emerged at the time and in the aftermath. Uh, John Delaney. Lance Corporal from Dublin and Joseph Hawes from Kilrush uh, County Clare, who was a private. Uh, they came, became actually rival protagonists uh, in the years after the mutiny hmm. over uh, various issues, uh, maybe down to personalities as much as anything else. But they were explicit in the statements that they made to the press throughout their lives, actually. Um, they, they serialized, you know, Joseph Hawes did his version of events, and in retaliation, almost Flannery would, would come out with statements in the press as well. But in 1949, Joe Hawes did make a, a lengthy uh, a statement to the Bureau of Military History, outlining uh, the events from his perspective. And as one of the initial leaders, uh, he was very clear that it was a political uh, protest. Now, that's fair enough. Uh, you might say he probably would want to say that. Mm. In recent years, though, um, that has been questioned occasionally in, in a number of places. And um, it has been suggested that bad relations between officers and men, hot weather and, and related factors might have contributed or in fact been responsible, been the real reason behind the, uh, the, the rising. I think there's a number of issues that have to be uh, kind of pinned down on, on that in terms of motivation. The British themselves in their own reports which are very scathing of, of the Irish soldiers in many respects. 
yeah. uh, makes no contention of the fact that they felt the political uh, motivations were sincere uh, and listed that of the six grievances that they, they uh, isolated and identified as being responsible. News from home was number two and, and political grievance was number one. Hmm. Issues such as hot weather and bad officers uh, were further down the list. Um, I think the second point then is, um, in terms of their, their motivations being genuine or not, there's a very different mix of people involved in the new. You have this hardcore leadership who will eventually spend time in jails in India uh, and Britain before they're released in 1923. They're clearly a committed group of hardened young men. And what's more interesting about these guys is they had long service in the British Army. All of the leadership practically, uh, including Daly, had served throughout World War I. So these weren't okay. young, brash recruits right. who maybe lacked discipline. They also had the most to lose. They were losing substantial pensions by the standards of the day. And that would save them, you know, from, from dire poverty that, that haunted, you know, the, the working poor uh, at the time. So they had everything to lose. There certainly was no naivety on their part. They had soldiered through the worst conflict in living memory. But there is a second group also um, of younger recruits. And at its height, there's 380 men involved in the mutiny. But this group actually wanes as the week progresses. There's a huge number of these soldiers that were susceptible to the pleas, to the barracking, and also to the, the kind of reconciliatory speeches made by their superior officers. So the group grows and shrinks uh, as the week progresses from the Sunday night until the, until the Friday of the following week. So the younger recruits tended actually to be the majority of soldiers who went back to the side of their officers, and to the loyal side, uh, as the, the, the mutineers called them. Uh, they actually refer to them as ratters uh, also. But, um, so that divide is important. Yes, there are younger, more, I suppose, inexperienced soldiers. They, I mean, in terms then of, of conditions, I mean, the heat is obviously extreme. It's 40 degrees in Jalander this week. I checked on, on Google weather. Um, mm -hmm. They're held in a camp. Uh, at Jalander with bell tents sleeping on the, the grass, on, on the sand. And 20 men, according to Hawes, of this group of about 80 later in the week, um, pass out and actually lose the ability of speech. They can't talk. Wow. Uh, they're so uh, dehydrated and so sunstruck. The, um, the medical doctor at the time in the camp, who was with the, you know, um, the, the loyal officers, if you like, deserves a note. He was a Dr. Kearney an Irish doctor, he um, recorded in the official inquiry notes um, that the treatment of the soldiers was inhumane uh, in the aftermath of the mutiny, in keeping them under t canvas tents in the heat. Um, the uh, Colonel Judwine actually wrote to him and asked him to remove the term inhumane uh, from his notes. This is held in the War Office uh, memorandum on the affair. And he refused to, he held his ground and said, no, they were withstanding inhumane treatment. Fair so enough. the idea that these were somehow naive, reckless, badly disciplined soldiers, I, I, I think is a weak argument based simply on how much they had to lose by their actions. Yeah. You take an oath of allegiance to the king or albeit queen when you join the British forces. It's immediately uh, possible to sentence you to death for reneging on your oath. And of course, they do execute daily. They have everything to lose. This is not a lark, a drunken lark, because if it was, I mean, you're paying very, very serious consequences for it. In terms of bad officers, has been identified Colonel Deacon, who was in charge, was severely criticised. There's allegations of drunkenness among a few of the officers. 
I would argue that that pretty much goes for British Army officers across the globe. I mean, they had been exposed at the upper echelons of the British Army uh, in the European War uh, to have, you know, rank uh, incompetency in their upper upper ranks. The the system of uh, aristocratic privilege that decided commissions and so on was proven to be extremely outdated and, uh, and not fit for purpose. Uh, in other words, there's bad officers in hot weather all over the world. Uh, there's bad officer hot weather in, in sub-Saharan Africa, in, in the Boer campaign, in, in, in Australia, you know, Canada, and so on, where the, where the British Empire extends. It doesn't explain this one particular mutiny, I would say. So, yeah, there's going to be different motivations, there's going to be different levels of commitment, and certainly conditions there are going to impact people's, why people become involved. But certainly amongst the leadership, and, and certainly to about 100 men, what they undergo and what they know that they're going to be put through, I would argue, is far too severe. Uh, they have far too much to lose to be motivated anything other than sincere convictions. Yeah, I can see what you mean, like, especially because they had spent so much time during the Great War. They weren't just fresh and raw recruits who were just like annoyed with the situation. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they have a similar background, the leaders, which is interesting. They join as young men. All of them, I think, I'm open to correction, I have their notes here, uh, in 1914, maybe some of them in 1950. So they're five-year service. They're demobilized in 1980. Right. They all, nearly that group of leaders, rejoin in 1919, practically the following day after demobilization. They join in Dover, actually, England. They don't even go back to Ireland. Right, Okay. A lot of these guys. So these are soldiers for essentially career soldiers, yeah. Rather than hot-headed young men. I think what's also interesting, I suppose, I, I talked about it on another platform, is um, they remained loyal to the British Army, you know, after the horrors of World War One mm. and after the horrors of, of Dublin at Easter Week, nineteen sixteen. Even you know the bloodshed. A lot. Um, there was a lot of Dubliners, even though it's a, it's a regiment traditionally of the the west of Ireland, still garrison in Galway, of course. Um, uh, that had stayed, like Stephen Lally, who lived in Dublin, that, that had stayed with the regiment after the war. Um, you know, the, the rising didn't seem to have made any impact on their decisions to, to stay within the military. But it's 1920 um, when they take this action. Uh, when coercion actually is, is quite a lot less than it had been four years earlier, certainly bloodshed is, is far less in that early part of 1920 than it had been four years earlier at Easter time. So the timing is interesting, I would say why they chose then uh, at that time and, and why why then and why there, I suppose. But uh, there's some imponderables there, definitely, to, to mull over. Yeah, for sure. It, it doesn't make sense that, that they would, you know, mutiny then, but not during 1916. That doesn't make sense because obviously, like I said, yeah, it's much worse in 1916. I think, like, there's the letter from um, Hawes. He says he got a letter and either he was there or the letter says that the British army had, you know, prescribed a hurling match at bayonet point, you know, yeah. and, and this, this is one of the things that caused them to, to mutiny, but certainly that's, you know, that's bloodless and it's nowhere near as um, violent as the Easter week, 1916. Yeah. I, I, I kind of get stuck on that point too, as an interesting one. I suppose you could concede definitely that, I mean, they're going to frame their, their, their motivations in the context of, of the times, uh, you know, independent Ireland in the, in the aftermath of the War of Independence and so on and so forth. 
But even that, that reference to the hurling match in Clare being suppressed and this inspiring Hawes to, to, to action in India, you know, it's, it's, it's strange, to be honest. Mm. Uh, the, the, the real atrocities, the black and tans, that people popularly, I think, motivated them. That actually came later. Uh, it's, it's the general suppression of the civilian population. That, uh, that 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 these guys are are, are reacting in, in, against, you know. Yeah. And then, like you kind of touched on it earlier on, but why is it this iconic Rangers in India? You know, like there's that quote: "The Royal Irish Regiment is quote full of Sinn Feiners." Yeah. Know? So why isn't it? Why don't they revolt at this? Yeah. Or any of the other Irish, uh, uh, any of the other Irish regiments, the Irish Guards, or, or you know whomever. This is a big fear uh, in the British authorities at the time that the Irish uh, regiments could become unreliable. And actually that was a feature of the War Office's strategic planning right from the beginning in terms of the, the, uh, the Unionist regiments, you know, the, the, uh, were kind of um, given a degree of independence and their own command structures and, and uh, you know, that, that they were very reluctant to give to the Irish regiments in terms of... Uh, being commanded frequently by English officers and so on. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an ever-present fear that the Irish regiments were going to be somehow a, a liability. So then why does this become a reality in this small detachment up in North India and not in the Royal Irish Regiment or uh, particularly the Dublin Fusiliers, uh, I would argue, because these are the same socio-economic groups that the volunteers come from. They're farmers' sons, they're labourers, mm. they're lower working class, very few lower middle class people become soldiers. I think they're more inclined to be administrators in the empire. Uh, so I don't think we have an answer, quite frankly, David, why it happens in India, why not elsewhere. I think what happens at this point in the debate is people bleed into the argument at that point that maybe it was the weather and the conditions. Right. I mean, there's horrendous weather all over uh, mm. you know, the world. Uh, it is not the only very hot place in the British Empire, far, far from it. So I think that's uh, that variable, you know, is, is alone can't really account for. So, as as a kind of historian of Galway and the West of Ireland at the time, it's strange because if you look at Galway and the Connacht Tribune during this entire period in the newspapers, I mean, they had a lot of pride in the Connacht Rangers' exploits around the world. Yeah, there was no sense of embarrassment or shame about having a, a brother, an uncle, or a relative of any kind serving in the in the British Army. Now, that changes very quickly and, and very uh, much in 1920, later in that year, with the actions of the Black and Tans. But this idea that you were somehow a traitor to, to Ireland or a disgrace really came later. And actually, the term British Army, you won't find that in, in contemporary sources. This is the army, and it is the Galway Regiment. And uh, these guys are actually, you know, doing their bit for Galway and for Ireland. You know, and uh, that has obviously not something that, that people are very conscious of now. But you'll still find that in some parts of the west of Ireland. For instance, in St. Nicholas's Cathedral in Galway City, you'll find the, the banners of the Connacht Rangers and commemorations to their officers um, festooning uh, the cathedral. Right. And um, the idea that these men brought glory to Galway, you know, hasn't entirely gone away. So, uh, you know, these weren't regarded as potential hotbeds of sedition. They had fought across the Western Campaign. They'd been at Gallipoli, Suvla Bay. Um, they'd fought in the Balkans Campaign, various uh, uh, regiments of, of the, uh, sorry, various battalions. So, in like a lot of things, it, it, you couldn't have foreseen it, I think, 
it wouldn't have been something they would have anticipated in the Rangers, definitely. Yeah, it's unusual that. And then the same again, why when you said that they sent two emissaries to the different camps, Solon and Judah Hill, you know, that only Solon joined the mutiny yeah. and the other one stayed loyal as such. Yeah, that's another what if. There was three camps in the in the uh, in the hinterland. Uh, well, two camps in the hinterland of the main camp at Wellington. Only one at Solon, not at Jutok, goes out with the mutineers. I think one person made a, a stand briefly before uh, being, you know, realizing it was foolhardy that the rest of the, the detachment there weren't willing to take part. Again, one would have to assume it's issues to do with personalities, leadership yeah. figures, perhaps amongst the group. Uh, and, and conditions there in the camp but yes this group is unified at its core but there are an awful lot of men who switch sides throughout the week so the degree of commitment of all of the group you know is is not resolute uh, and what's interesting in that is joseph halls talks about a number of scottish and english soldiers uh, who appear in the pension claims actually uh, claims from england and scotland and one from wales uh, for taking part in the mutiny, who actually go back on the side of their officers during the week when they see Irish soldiers doing likewise. And they feel, well, what's the point in us staying out if Irish soldiers themselves aren't going to stay out? Um, so we're not necessarily talking about the same kind of motivation for all of the group with the same commitment. Uh, and when the number starts to, to shrink of those who, who are remaining with the loyal with the mutineers under Hawes and others in Flannery, you can see how it affects their morale. The British officers are very effective, essentially, at at talking a lot of these men out of their protest. Yeah, doesn't James Daly, his own brother, like originally joins with the mutineers and then kind of slinks away from the the whole thing? Yeah, Daly is fascinating because he, he's actually born, and we'll claim him as a Galway man, he's born in Ballymow, actually, right, okay. Common Border. Incidentally, the same village a number of years earlier where Amy Cant was born. But um, he joined the army as a boy by lying about his age. His father and brothers had also joined the army, served through the entire war, re-enlisted again. So these are career soldiers. You would imagine uh, with you know an intense bond of comradeship uh, and experience with their their brother uh, soldiers. Mm. Uh, these uh, Daly is an extremely unlikely rebel. This is a strong family tradition of of, of uh, service. It's he that actually, you know, takes the mutiny to another level. He commits them to spreading this throughout the Irish regiments and to you know insurrection essentially. And um, he knew when they were attacking fifty or so men behind him. He led to the front famously. It's very cinematic, actually, uh, on the night of the Thursday, excuse me, attacking the magazine fort to get the rifles to to, uh, to arm themselves, that this was an extremely serious escalation of their protest. Yeah. Uh, but again, Daly had a huge amount to lose in terms financially, in terms of even his uh, his lifetime commitment to the, to the, to the, to the regiment. It, it, you know, you couldn't foresee that these kind of characters would lead such a revolt. So, yeah, I think that would negate the idea that this was somehow almost a, an accidental mutiny that was retrospectively framed as, a, as, a, as some kind of a Republican protest. Because uh, neither Daly, Hawes, nor Flannery, nor any of the other leaders had shown any sympathies whatsoever 
in terms of Republican sentiment. They wouldn't have... And actually, Republicans at home in 1920, Sinn Féin, the volunteers coming them on, they would have regarded these men with contempt, quite yeah, frankly. Yeah, definitely. They would, have, they would have seen these guys as... You know, there was all kinds of terms of abuse, but essentially the corner boys, you know, of the towns, uh, mm. these were the, as far as they were concerned, you know, the lowest of Irishmen uh, by serving in the British Armed Forces. And so the fact that they made common cause with, with, uh, with the Irish people, again, is, it's, it's, very, it's a very unlikely uh, thing for them to do. Yeah, I think it's just like the element of, oh, they're standing up to the British Army or, and to the British Empire. But, you know, people kind of forget that, you know, they are very much a cog in the wheel of the British Empire and obviously the British Army, like, you know, but like you said, it's just framed in a Republican, in a Republican way, really. Yeah, it's, uh, I'd also think, as you know yourself, David, like for these guys joining the army, there was no political dimension mm. to it. The yeah. idea that they were loyal to king and country, I mean, I would imagine they couldn't care less about king or country. Yeah. It's simply economic survival. They're joining out of poverty. They're joining uh, uh, out of uh, out of you know the servitude of being a, a, a laborer's son or, or a small farmer's son with no hope of, firstly, no hope of a wife or a home unless you can you can you can leave the the, the, the townland and the parish where yeah. you're never going to have a job of, of any substance. So these are essentially economic migrants first and foremost that are fighting in the war. They develop a bond amongst each other. But the idea that they're somehow fighting for the British Empire, you know, is of course a reality. But yeah. in their hearts and minds, they're simply trying to earn a earn a earn a, earn a crust. It's fair enough. Like they all say, they're just doing a job. I mean, speaking of the escalation on the Thursday with Daly and the fifty others, what were they really hoping to do? I know, like Father Benjamin Baker, he convinced the mutineers to put down their arms or put their arms, throw them away, and then something changes. And then Daly and the 50 try to, you know, take back their arms. But what, what are they really hoping to do there? Yeah, again, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of it's supposed to be a peaceful protest. Yeah. And what they hope to do uh, changes and evolves. So initially what they hope to do is simply refuse to serve in protest. Their aims are limited. They're certainly not in Jalander trying to foment revolt across the British Army in its initial phase. Right. They're making a protest and kind of trying to articulate a grievance. As that week progresses then, they concede to their superior officers that they will be relieved of their duty in the camp, that they will actually agree to march two miles or so to a newly constructed camp where they would wait out a period of time until their grievances had been addressed by the regiment or the the war office in India. So this is crucial, I think, to how they are essentially beaten very quickly in, in Jalander. They actually march out together in unison, in mm. their uh, uniforms, but uh, decked out actually in Irish colours, rosettes and an Irish tricolour, nice. to this new camp. Uh, but they're walking in essentially to a prison. I, I would say they kind of their own naivety. I would go as far as to say they were tricked, really, yeah. into allowing themselves to be imprisoned in a camp, whilst uh, new soldiers from the South Wales borderers and the Seaforth Highlanders. It's interesting an Irish regiment being replaced by a Scottish and a Welsh uh, regiment, and they're then essentially in a prison camp for the remainder of the week under the forty degree heat, sleeping on sand under bell tents, from which there's no escape. 
Yeah. The British Army uh, put uh, machine guns uh, around the camp, and it's a barbed wire encampment. So their aims were peaceful and to register a protest. However, by the time the emissaries get to Solan, things change very quickly. James Daly, I think, um, probably instantly, without a huge degree of forethought, decides to escalate the protest by saying, no, what we're trying to do is make headlines around the world in newspapers that will then spread this protest amongst other Irish regiments. Gotcha. We are t- trying to do something bigger. Yeah. Uh, he's a great um, talent for the aesthetic of rebellion, I think, daily. He has a physical swagger. He dresses with a famously in a, an open top, open white shirt. His proclamations are, you know, he, refu- he says that they will refuse to serve until all British dogs are removed from Ireland. Uh, their protests will last until. So, yeah, Daly's escalating the protests' aims and ambitions. And then, on the Thursday night, he escalates the actions by attacking the, uh, the magazine building to, to rearm themselves. So if the mistake of the first group of men at Jalander, I think, was to march to the prison camp, the mistake of the second group was to agree to hand over their arms uh, and to be a peaceful protest. Mm. And again... As so often happens in Irish history, a priest makes a dramatic appearance on the scene and kind of changes the course of events. The Father Baker that you mentioned is, is, is an important character in the, the drama of the week. And uh, he's present in the camp at Solon throughout uh, and at the execution of, of Daly. He's right. um, counselling Daly to de-escalate his protests as much as possible, tries to restrain him on the night of the attack on the magazine and also then actually counsels the dying and administers the the, uh, the sacraments to the, to the dead soldiers and to Daly himself later on. So without Baker, would it have been a bigger revolt? Very possibly. It's another what if. And uh, it's funny, I've seen this before. It happened with Liam Mellows in 1916 in Galway. A priest appears and so on. Oh, yeah. Um, Baker becomes actually an important chronicler of the events. Uh, he recounts in detail later the events at the execution, taking the final statements of, of Daly, writing letters for Daly to his loved ones, uh, and so on. And a lot of these accounts of Daly's final moments were, it was uh, said they were embellished by Joe Hawes and, and others. But actually, Baker, Father Baker, was able to kind of corroborate a lot of what was said by the other mutineers about Daly's execution and ensure that... Uh, a lot of the eyewitness accounts weren't easily dismissed because his account is actually quite dramatic also mm. uh, in terms of, of the events. So I think he became important actually as, as the historian of the, of the week uh, later on because he had a very, uh, he was a respected uh, figure in the, in, in, the, in the whole affair, you know? Yeah. Yeah, once again, a priest interferes in Irish history and changes the course of it. Like you were saying there, the mutiny had been framed or, you know, had been framed in a Republican cause. And you can kind of see that in what Hawes said, saying that we were doing in India what the British British forces were doing in Ireland. Do you think that he's right there in the sense that they're suppressing the local Indian nationalist groups? Or do you think that that's just appealing to... Republican Ireland? Well, there's a, co- a couple of things going on. I think inevitably Hawes is going to amplify the patriotic sentiment okay. of the mutineers. 
But in terms of what they were doing, his famous phrase um, that he says, we were doing in India what the black and tans were doing in Ireland. Uh, he, he, he writes that in 1949. It's interesting to, to look at the colonial context of what they're doing and is he correct? Um, the governor of the Punjab was actually a Tipperary man, Michael O'Dwyer, right. was ironically one of the leaders of 1798 rebellion, Michael mm. O'Dwyer, but uh, obviously no relation. Yeah. Um, O'Dwyer was actually an infamous figure uh, for lots of reasons, but one of which was his staunch defence of the actions of the British military at Amritsar in April 1919, of course, just over a year before the rebellion, in the Punjab, where another British army officer, Reginald Dyer, uh, had actually killed 370 Indian civilians and wounded a 1,000, uh, famously in the square at Amritsar in, in a massacre of, of Indian nationalists. Uh, the Amritsar massacre, of course, is famously dramatised, maybe most, most uh, how people know it mostly might be from the, the, from in, from the famous scene in the, the Gandhi biography that won so many Oscars or, or awards back in the day. But uh, Dyer was interesting because Dyer actually had his military, had his education, his military education in, in Middleton County Cork. Uh, had began his military career serving in Belfast. Uh, and O'Dwyer was a Tipperary man. There were two hated figures in Indian nationalism. And they, their actions, I mean, Paul says what we were doing in, in, in India was, was the same as, as what the Black and Tans were doing in Ireland. To be honest, um, what the British military were doing in India was far worse than what the Black and Tans, bad and all as, as they were, were doing in Ireland. Mm. I mean, particularly Amritsar has so many echoes. Um, for instance, they, the uh, Dyer pulled his forces out of the city uh, without treating the dead and wounded who were simply left uh, to die and, and in agony uh, in Amritsar. He was severely censored afterwards in, in the... Uh, the Hunter report into actions, uh, a parliamentary report into his behaviour. But O'Dwyer stood behind him all the way, Tipperary uh, governor of the Punjab, and, and was a staunch defender of his and wrote a book in 1925. You can download it from archive.org if you're interested. Uh, basically, um, a, a defence of, of their actions and of their of their killings of, of civilians, uh, in uh, that and other incidents. So, when we're remembering... Um, I think the mutiny. We have to be careful as Irish people to say, well, what were they doing there and how would the, the local Indian community uh, perceive all of this? Because while retrospectively one or two Stephen Lally, being one private Stephen Lally, spoke about his um, admiration for the Indian nationalist movements, it's not something that they dwell on uh, in their accounts. And also... It's not something I would say that was part of the aims or ambitions of the rebellion, as articulated by Hawes and Daly, you know, to spread mutiny to the Indian community. Right. So this was a this was a protest by Irish men about events in Ireland. It was viewed by the British authorities as a potential um, spark to light uh, Indian protest about uh, events in India, um, but. Poor owl Michael O'Dwyer, famously, uh, he actually, uh, both of them met kind of sad ends. Um, he was actually shot dead in 1940 uh, in, um, in London uh, by a, an Indian nationalist. 
uh, in in uh, in protest at the actions at Amritsar. Maybe if you won't mind, can I just quote um, Singh's speech from the dock because it could very very easily have been Thomas Ash or or Brent or uh, any of the Irish uh, martyrs of the period. So Singh said from the dock um, as he before he faced his execution, he said, uh, I say down with British imperialism. You say India does not have peace. We have only slavery. Generations of so-called civilization has brought us everything filthy and degenerating known to the Irish, to the uh, human race. Uh, I am standing before an English jury in an English court. You people go to India. When you come back, you were given a prize and put in the House of Commons. We come to England and we are sentenced to death. Much of his rhetoric I would say it's very redolent of Irish Republican rhetoric at the time. Yeah, it's very, very redolent of the McSweeney's rhetoric uh, before he dies uh, 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 in Brixton Prison. It's very uh, of Thomas Ashe and others uh, of British imperialism. So I think the two, the, the Indian nationalism and the Irish national republicanism, are kind of coexisting side by side. Um, but maybe the overlaps uh, are, are, are very in terms of the imperial governance of the Punjab. I would argue, more than any overt sympathy or connections between the two groups in this particular instance. Yeah, that kind of makes sense the way they don't try to join up together if they are in mutiny. It would make sense for the, the Connacht Rangers if they are in such a hotbed of a nationalist area in India that they would kind of try to, I think one of them says that they would officer their troops. I can't remember which ranger that was. But like that, you know, they had a, a ready available army there for them of Indian nationalists who could have helped overthrow the British army as such. But because that wasn't really their, uh, the Connacht Rangers' aims, you know, they, yeah. never, they never really linked up. I'd, I'd, I'd say they wouldn't have had maybe the, the ability to organize such a, you know, such an alliance. Yeah, these true. are these are officers. Or sorry, these are non-commissioned officers of privates, language, culture, and all of the various barriers that would have existed. And, and let's be frank here: most Irish ordinary people would have held deeply racist notions about Indian people, about people of color as well. Definitely, you know, yeah. there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't have shared the prejudices of the time, which is perfectly, you know, understandable. It's 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 not, you know. Uh, one other interesting overlap there, David, I noticed just as I was looking at um, the speeches of, of Daly and um, Indian nationalist Udam Singh. Singh finished his speech before execution by saying, down with the British imperialism, down with British dirty dogs. Hmm. And of course, famously, Daly yeah. had said to his commanding officer in front of the, his mutineers, uh, we would refuse that, that, that the protest would continue until all British dogs had been uh, had been removed from Ireland. So. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting little parallel between the two. That's pretty interesting, all right? Thomas Bartlett says, James Daly was shot, not for Ireland, but for India. And I suppose that that's, as we were saying, it's to keep the peace in the Punjab, to keep India as part of the, the uh, British Empire, keep it as a colony relatively peacefully. But um, what happens to the rest of the mutineers? Well... Um, the afterlife of the mutiny is in many ways as interesting as events during the week. They, in all, um, just under 90 mutineers were uh, court-martialed. The court-martials okay. began on the 20th of August in Dagshai. 
uh, and continued into uh, September. Fourteen uh, were sentenced to, to death by firing squad, uh, and almost uh, the remainder then were uh, sentenced to prisons ranging from life uh, and 21 years imprisonment with hard labour down to three years imprisonment uh, at the lower end of the scale. Thirteen or so or more were, were found not guilty, actually, at their court martials. But this uh, core group were held in Dagshai Jail under very extreme conditions. It was a condemned prison in, uh, in India, so I don't think you oh, need wow. to stretch okay. your descriptions of what it might have been like. They had no change of clothes, actually, throughout that entire period. A number of men uh, had claimed. But they were shipped back to Ireland as a group in January of 1921. I'd say to their immense relief... Uh, they were brought to Southampton where they docked. The vast bulk of the men then were brought to Maidstone Prison where they were to serve out the rest of their sentences. Now at least five other prisoners were dispersed to different uh, prisons. But in the meantime, of course, Daly had been executed on the 2nd of November. A second prisoner, John Miranda, who was from Bootle in Liverpool, he actually died of typhoid uh, mm. in the prison on the 22nd of December before they had pulled out uh, uh, their prisoners. And actually, Miranda still lies in a Commonwealth war grave uh, in the Punjab. And uh, the other men, I'm sure, as we will come to uh, the three men, the Daly, Sears and Smith, were repatriated in 1970, their bodies back to Ireland on the 50th anniversary of the, of the mutiny. But uh, Miranda was English. Uh, he had no relatives that were Ireland, were Irish. And... Uh, you know, he, he still lays, uh, yeah. it wasn't seen as appropriate to bring him back to, to another country. So in terms of, of the men in Maidstone Prison, uh, the Civil War, of course, was raging uh, in 1922. And the Irish government under uh, Cosgrave had been making an indemnity deal with the British government as part of the formation of the new state to essentially indemnify British soldiers for their actions in Ireland. And this provided an opportunity then for the Rangers uh, uh, to get out of jail, essentially, because um, they wrote, actually, uh, in August of that year, uh, over 20 of the prisoners in Maidstone and elsewhere sent individual petitions to, uh, uh, to the War Office stating that they wished to be freed from jail in order that they could fight for the new Free State Army okay. in its conflict with the IRA that was raging at the time. Now, whether these are sincere or not, it's neither here nor there, I suppose, whether it was a way of, um, of just securing their release on the part of the men, uh, um, we can't really tell. But 28 of them actually wrote petitions. And they're interesting, the language used. One man, Patrick uh, Cherry, wrote that he wanted the opportunity, and this is a direct quote, to make known my loyalty to his majesty, which I had the misfortune to break. Joe Hawes himself wrote that he wanted to join the National Army in the Irish Civil War because of the desolation and misery caused to my country by a Spanish adventurer, De Valera, and his followers. Right. So uh, it was in January of 23 then, the Cosgrave government announced that they had actually secured the release of the prisoners. And certainly their public protestations of support of some of the men far from all of them, and actually not a majority, but a minority, right. uh, for the National Army's uh, campaign against the IRA, uh, may have played a role in their release, or may not. It certainly would, have, would not have helped had they made public statements in support of the IRA, you could have argued, yeah. uh, at the time. The other kind of interesting aspect of that is 
Um, not that many of those men actually joined the National Army. We have 258 or 54 off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember, and claims uh, for military service pensions uh, that are available for anyone to look at. They're, they're immensely valuable repositories of information on the mutiny. And of that group, uh, around 20 or so actually claimed for service with the National Army during the Civil War, of those 250-odd claims. Okay. So a small number did join the National Army, but I think in the popular imagination, um, they, they are sometimes associated uh, with the National Army in the aftermath. But it's ironic, David, because whilst the Cosgrave government had secured their release or played a role in securing their release, they weren't committed or prepared to give these men pensions for mm. their military service, to essentially replace the pensions they lost with their British army uh, when they mutinied. Um, the, under the Military uh, Service Pension Acts, uh, members of the various forces of independence movements, the Irish Volunteers, Come and and the Irish Citizen Army and so on, uh, were to secure pensions uh, in the coming decades for their services uh, to the independence struggle. The um, Rangers and actually the anti-treaty IRA were omitted from that early legislation in 24 yeah. uh, that granted pensions. And in that respect, it's a, it's a supreme irony that it's Eamon de Valera and principally Frank Aiken who's involved as government minister in securing the Connacht Rangers, their pensions, uh, under the 1936 Pension Act that dealt specifically with men who had served 12 months in jail or more in the aftermath of the mutiny that had been uh, court-martialed for, for 12 months or more. Of course, Aiken had been perhaps the key organiser, the key divisional commander of the IRA uh, during the Civil War in the 4th Northern Division yeah. uh, in the Louth and, and South Ulster uh, uh, areas. Yeah, famous for the Dundalk jailbreak, uh, among many other things as well, of course. Yeah, the, the Dundalk jailbreak, while you're mentioning it there, uh, David, I mean, it's it's to possibly the most spectacular operation of the entire period. I think Aiken uh, doesn't get the credit uh, he deserves. And again, his, his competency as a, as a minister, uh, the Mutiny Act is, is an example of, uh, of his magnanimous nature, actually, because these guys had made high-profile uh, claims of support to the National Army, uh, you know, that had executed many of his comrades. Mm. And, and in fact, um, one of the mutineers, uh, Thomas Murray from Kilcarn Nav in County Mead, in a, in a terrible irony, he had returned home. He was court-martialed but dismissed. He'd served a number of months in jail, dismissed from the, from the army with ignominy, mm. uh, joined the IRA during the War of Independence, the Meath Brigade, fought in the South Loud uh, Flying Column in the Civil War, uh, was arrested in early January. He was actually executed uh, in Dundalk Jail uh, one week after the arrival home of the Connacht Rangers from Maidstone Prison that he had mutinied with uh, three years earlier. Right. Uh, he was from a poor labouring family. His mother, he was an only son, had applied the military service pension uh, for a pension for him, for his role in the mutiny, because he hadn't served enough time in jail. He didn't qualify, mm. but he was actually entitled to a military service pension because of the fact that he was, he was shot dead. His mother, Betsy, actually, all of these claims revealed some really sad and, and, and remarkable information, uh, ended her days in a, in a mental asylum in Mullingar, mm -hmm. uh, along with her son-in-law, who lived in the same house, and uh, became a ward of court 
And um, in 1936, when the pension um, scheme was made, she wrote to the government as saying a direct quote from her letter here. She said, I would be thankful if I could get some compensation for my son's time in India, no matter how small he was my only son. Uh, the old IRA actually wrote in the same year saying that if it wasn't for St. Vincent de Paul, uh, Thomas Murray's family would be destitute. So, um, Jesus, whilst there is a public identification, initially of these men as Republicans, yeah. that evolved quite quickly and they became associated with, for a lot of people, uh, with the National Army and, and, and the, the National Army cause. Uh, that changes again in many ways in the 30s, when... Um, they become identified with Frank Aiken, if you like, and, and become, I think, um, re-emerge as part of the Republican narrative once more. Yeah. You know, so that their, their, their legacy and their political associations definitely evolve and change uh, over the decades. I suppose just like the mutiny itself. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to say they were used by the Cosgrave government. I would say that it was a popular cause. They were probably... You know, personally delighted that they could secure their release. Mm. It did them no harm politically. I also suspect the British were delighted to get rid of them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, everyone was a winner from that perspective. But I think it's really interesting that the Common Gael government wouldn't give them pensions, but the Republican government under De Valera were prepared to do so. You know, it's and and that I think marks the re emergence in popular memory of Daly and others as Republican icons. And that cemented, of course, in 1970, uh, when the three men are reinterred uh, from Punjab and flown home and uh, are, are interred then. Uh, Sears and Smith in Glasnevin in the Republican plot, where the, the plaque now stands to them. And Daly, which is interesting, again, in his family's burial plot in Tyrrell's Pass, Remember, he's going to be buried alongside his father, a British Army soldier, and his four brothers, all British Army soldiers also. Right, that's really interesting that, yeah, he doesn't get the, the Republican burial, but rather in with his family, who <laughs> served the British Empire. Served in the British Army, rather. Yeah, it's... Um, but I think then, if you look at the witness statements and the afterlives... They're fascinating, but I think the key thing that you find really is the, the, the general experience is similar to any group of ex-soldiers after after their service in these um, places overseas. I think poverty and ill health reoccurs uh, mm. constantly in the claims. Quite a number come from uh, hospitals, uh, come from shelters or, or homeless, or, uh, two of them certainly in New York, from men who were homeless and essentially down and out. A number of deserted wives feature in the pension claims that are writing, uh, deserted uh, children also. Um, these are certainly, like any group of ex-soldiers, they're a rough and ready group of, of tough, you know, men, mm -hmm. who uh, many of them, you know, might not necessarily be caragons of virtue or, or Republican um, notions of Irish manhood either, but that, that's just the reality of any group of soldiers. Yeah, the you know, story there um, of a guy who abandoned his his wife and ends up in, I think it was like in in London first or in England somewhere, and then ends up in in New York. Yeah, that was a fascinating one. It's William Coleman. Uh, he was from uh, Tipperary. He enlisted in the British Army in, a few months before the Easter Rising. 
Uh, he was demobilized after World War One. Again, he joined these, the Rangers then in 1919. He was court-martialed. He was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. Uh, released from Mainstone with the rest of the mutineers in January of 23. He actually did receive a pension in 36. Right. So he was part of that hardcore uh, uh, of, 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 of the leadership group, if you like. And uh, But a year after the pensions were awarded, his unfortunate wife wrote to the pensions board uh, asking for her husband's whereabouts. Uh, and the letters, uh, I'll quote from it, she said, As I am his wife, he went to Ireland, got his money, and has not written to me yet. This was the following year. I have a young baby to keep, and I'd be grateful, as I'm a bit worried. So Coleman had returned to, uh, to London, actually. And he lived in addresses across Wales and England for the rest of his life in Ireland. He lived a nomadic existence. But when he went back to get his pension, uh, he never returned to his wife and child. And actually, uh, the board wrote to his wife and informed him that the address they had for him was, was actually in London. Right. Uh, he was somewhere else in England. Uh, he subsequently lived uh, in numerous addresses. But remarkably, Coleman actually re-enlisted on the outbreak of World War II. He fought in Europe uh, as part of the British Expeditionary Force. He was captured and became a prisoner of war for two years. Now, he claims he was sent back to Ireland from Berlin in 1945. He claims he was sentenced to death uh, while in France. Um, the military service board and others queried this and were somewhat sceptical that he was, uh, that he was uh, sentenced to death. But his documentation to the, the service, military service pension board, it's from a prison of war camp. It's stamped with Nazi insignia. There's no right. question that he faced severe deprivations in Germany. But what's interesting about Coleman, as well as signing up fighting and being convicted in the second conflict, as well as the first he actually racked up a string of convictions in the courts around Ireland. Uh, he was con first convicted in 1924 and convicted for the fourth time in 1955 for theft of a bicycle. He was actually sentenced to six months jail in 1955, a harsh sentence by today's standards. But what's important from the perspective of his pension was uh, any um, ex anyone in receipt of a military service pension with a criminal conviction forfeited their pension. Wow, okay. uh, so he actually lost his pension uh, because of this uh, in the aftermath uh, in 55. He lobbied amongst others Dan Breen, the famous flying co uh, column commander of the IRA, who spoke for him in, in negotiations with the government and secured the return of his pension, which is fascinating. Here's a man who fought for Britain twice, yeah. re rebelled against them in India, uh, had abandoned his family. And then one of the most iconic IRA leaders is representing him in protestations to the state over losing his pension because of his criminal convictions, of which there were several. Yeah. Uh, he died a number of years later, and um, he, he did actually, thanks to, to Fianna Fáil and, uh, and other leaders, he, uh, uh, Republican leaders, he was given back on the strength of their reputations, perhaps, his pension for the final years of his life, and he died in the late 60s. So these, like, um, these are fascinating guys, you know, with, you know, appealing and unappealing aspects to their character, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, but definitely I've come across a number of, of, of abandoned families and a number of, of, of people writing in, in dire circumstances. Um, that it, it, it's, it's a thread, I think, through a lot of people who've been through the worst aspects of the Great War. You know, a lot of these are very damaged people. Yeah, definitely.
obviously it wasn't known at the time. It was referred to as shell shock. Certainly exactly. PTSD was would have been rife. And certainly, you know, these guys, especially Coleman, who experienced it in both wars, you know, would have suffered from it throughout his entire life. Yeah, it's, um, and I saw pictures actually of his online, if people are interested, a very good uh, Facebook group for, uh, on the Connacht Rangers mutiny of his uh, of his grave in, in Tipperary and uh, and people uh, laid a wreath on it actually on the 100th anniversary. So, hmm. he, um, you know, these, these, it just reminds you, you know, these are, these are, this is very recent history. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that we're talking about, you know. And I think then, as well, doesn't uh, daily he gets an IRA armed guard firing a volley over his grave as well. Well, again, like daily is fascinating because, as I say, he's from a family with huge service in the British Army, his brothers and his father. Uh, he serves all the way through the war as a boy. He's an exemplar of service mm. uh, in the British military. But yet he's prepared um, to give his life. Uh, in the service of, 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 of the Irish people. So I think one of the legacies that we need to keep in mind in terms of, of the various twists and turns in his life is we can sometimes, you know, impose political ideologies and legacies and motivations on men who, you know, are just acting out of love for their families in the case of, and love of their, their comrades and, and so on. They're not articulating, you know, detailed manifestos uh, you know, of their political uh, beliefs. Yeah. The, joining the army, I think, if we accept, is not a political decision for most of them. Um, they love their country, many of these people, in, and, and their families and their communities, um, every bit as much as, as young men in many cases who joined the IRA. They were just found themselves in different circumstances. One of the men who actually had to clean up the execution scene uh, of Daly was a man called Valentine Delaney, from uh, near Clermaris in County Mayo. He joined the army uh, as a young man because his father had died and all his brothers and sisters were dispersed to family members and relatives. Uh, two of his brothers went into the terribly now notorious industrial school in Salt Hill. Okay. Uh, he found himself in India simply because of the premature death of his parents. Um, you know... They're just ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. And these, these remarkable twists and turns from being associated with the British Empire and then the National Army and then Republicanism and the IRA, in many ways these are things that outside groups are imposing upon their, their sacrifice and their memory in a certain respects, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, like, that's always been a case that poor guys have joined the army purely because of economic reasons. I mean... Damien Shields talks about that with during the American Civil War. You know, they join up so they can bring their family across uh, and, and set up a new life. Or, you know, it, it's happened, you know, countless times. Um, just in, I was reading a book on Eden Derry during the First World War, where I'm from. And same thing again, the vast majority of the recruits there are just, they're living in, I think it was like third class housing or below, you know. So they were just yeah. dirt poor and it was just three square meals. Uh, and a pay, you know, um, and even even today, like you know, in in the states, look at the number of recruits who join up to join the army or the armed forces to get college education as well, like you know, because they can't afford it otherwise. Oh, very much so. I mean, um, there's a saying here in the United States that the only socialist institution in America is the is the army. You know, where 
right. uh, recruits from any background yeah. uh, or ethnic group, you know, can can prosper and, and benefit from. You know, it's not true across the board, but you mm. know, there is a degree of egalitarianism uh, there. Yeah, it's interesting in terms of um, pointing out that these were men who joined the British Army uh, when Ireland was, if you like, in subjugation. That was pointed out by a number of Fianna Fáil TDs in Dáil Éireann when the legislation was brought in. It wasn't universally popular at all for Frank Aiken and Fianna Fáil to reward these men. Okay. Um, you know, with various speeches, I quoted one of them on different platforms. For instance, Frank McDermott, the, the TD, uh, he noticed that, um, that these men were not conscripts. They hadn't joined in answer to the appeal of John Redmond. In other words, they were less deserving than men who had fought in the earlier war, uh, the World War, uh, for, if you like, more uh, patriotic notions. Mm. And uh, he said that they had um, gone into the war and entered a glorious and ancient regiment, he said, kind of essentially mocking them. And uh, it was ironic that they should be given a reward which is denied to persons whose patriotism prevented them from going into the British Army in the first place. Uh, so I think it's interesting that Fianna Fáil were willing to do this in the face of quite a lot of criticism, uh, not universal by any means, from yeah. people who were pointing out that, you know, that there were people that were very badly treated in the aftermath uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the revolution, that it wasn't just the mutineers who, who had been forgotten in the 1920s, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, I mean, no, um, talking to Dr. Mary McAuliffe, you know, she was saying that the vast majority of coming to Mon, because they went anti-treaty, you know, we were talking about uh, Margaret Skinner and how she mm. didn't get the, the uh, pension, you know, despite fighting in 1916, despite being fairly active, you know, in both the War of Independence and the Civil War, but because she was coming to Mon, she didn't get it until the, the later uh, 1936 um, tranche of pension payments. Yeah, well, like if you look at, at at the popular historiography of the period, it's important in terms of even in in terms of the mutiny. They just took two statements from the mutineers: one from John Fannery from Dublin. Now, the other one, Joe Hawes. Joe Hawes presented them with his. As far as I can see, uh, he just brought his statement to them, as opposed to them soliciting it from them. Okay. So. They were as their own narrative was was very much, you know, underrepresented. Uh, the over nearly four hundred men were involved at some stage or another. They asked for the account of just one person. Right. But when you talk there, you're very right to highlight uh, the terms of women. If you look at the Bureau of Military Witness Statements, it's just over two hundred or so from women, uh, about ten percent or so of the to full total. But if you look at women from the west of Ireland, there's actually only eight statements from women in Connacht. And when you look at those statements, about half of them are actually about the men that they knew or were associated with. So the problem for rural women, I'm sure, in, uh, across Ireland is most active women are not actually in any organisation. You know, Cum and Naman isn't extensively organised in parts of rural Ireland. They are, you know, acting as, as out of, you know, loyalty and, and, and higher ideals, you know, but on the bounds of, of, of uh, kinship and, and local networks and so on, they're placing themselves in immense danger uh, for, for the independent struggle without actually being officially members of any organisation. Uh, and they're thus immediately excluded from pensions. Uh, if you're not a member of a, of a, you know, a list of organisations, including Cumann Amman, you cannot apply for yeah. a pension. Uh, so, um, 
lots of people are omitted from the from the histories of, of the Irish Revolution. That's being addressed now. Uh, the mutineers are just one of them. But the idea that everybody is remembered, you know, is, is, is very far from the reality of the situation. As a matter of fact, just, I have the statistics here. I was looking for them, uh, David. There were 258 applications for pensions out of the mutiny. Okay. Just 38 were awarded pensions. Wow. So that really highlights, you know, now about twice that number or so were actually court-martialed. So only maybe over half of those who served jail sentence actually were awarded military service pensions, essentially didn't apply. Now, 12 more were awarded gratuity payments, essentially for, for illnesses uh, in the aftermath of, of around 100, 150 pounds, and two men got disability pensions. So just 38 men were receiving regular pensions uh, of 10 to 15 shillings in typically a week yeah. out of it. So yeah. again, it has to be careful that the idea that this was somehow they were financially rewarded in the aftermath. You know, these are clearly very small figures yeah. that you're talking about, very small numbers of men. Yeah, it's kind of the the propaganda of the deed. The showmanship of the mutiny is what catches the attention, but the rest of their lives are just, you know, kind of a sad state of affairs for a lot of them. You know, whether they end up in destitute poverty or, you know, being executed by the, their own government or abandon their families or end up in psychiatric hospitals. Yeah, I definitely, I would, um, it's immediately apparent, even from a, a superficial survey of the pension files of these men, uh, casual work tended to be how they supported themselves in the aftermath. Yeah. Which again, as you mentioned, is very typical of veterans of the Great War uh, in Ireland that found it very hard to adapt to civilian life and secure um, good work. I mean, had they been members of the Irish Volunteers, they certainly would have been given preference. I would suggest, yeah. uh, as uh, in, in employment, you know. Mm. So they're they're rebels double over in many ways, uh, and they definitely are at the bottom of the pile in terms of uh, of how society sees the, the veterans of this period. Definitely. I suppose we, we kind of think of all of this as ancient history to a certain extent. But actually, um, I did, uh, I've did. i met um, the son of Valentine Delaney, actually, the man oh, wow. who actually um, had to clean up the execution scene uh, right. in Dagshire prison of his comrade, uh, James Daly. Valentine Delaney made his way to, uh, to the United States because he couldn't make a living in Ireland. He's typical of these men. They went back to the poverty from whence they came. Yeah. Uh, he was very ill for the rest of his life from respiratory illnesses developed in jail in Dagshire and in, in Maidstone where he had participated in two different hunger strikes oh, despite wow. having a pre-existing condition. And uh, he suffered a, a, a ill health for the rest of his life. Um, and remarkably, David, his three sons are still alive, um, all very successful uh, men in their own rights and with their own families. Um, but for them, this weekend was extremely emotional yeah. uh, and extremely important because it you know, directly affected their lives. But um, Valentine Delaney, again, it's almost a cliche. Like people who've been through war wouldn't talk about the events right. uh, in India or his imprisonment with his family. Um, mm. he, he told them one occasional uh, story or two, but wasn't willing to, to discuss this utterly life-changing event that had happened to him. And just, you know, wanted to get on uh, with his life. So um, 
we, we look at these things as, as being a long time ago, but really, you know, for a lot of people, this is very, very recent uh, history we're discussing that has impacted them profoundly in their lives. Jeez, that's incredible. His kids are still alive. Wow. Mm. And uh, I wasn't able to visit him because of the COVID situation here in New York. Mm. But uh, I'm going to see him uh, very soon. And actually, he sent me the, uh, his death warrant that was subsequently commuted. That oh, he, that he oh, kept he had that on in the... his scapula. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, uh, he was one of the 14 men sentenced to death. And he kept it hidden. And they wanted to retrieve all of the earlier documentation. They actually destroyed the court marshals in Dagsha. Oh, okay. Uh, we have some of them where individual soldiers held on to their court martial papers. And if researchers are interested, um, a number of them were published in the Longford Leader and the Roscommon Herald in 1923 as a kind of a serialization of, of events in India. Uh, but uh, he, that was one of the pieces of documentation that survived, was his death sentence that was subsequently commuted. So it's, a, it's a, an incredible piece of... Uh, of a, of a family history to have, you know. Yeah, that's incredible. Okay, so, Dr. Conor McNamara, thanks so much for coming on today and talking about the Connacht Rangers mutiny. Tell everybody where they can find you and your work, your books on Lee Mello, Warren Revolution in Galway, and all your other works, please. Yeah, thanks very much, David. It was a really enjoyable discussion. If people are interested in the period, I suppose, I mean, we, we touched a lot on the Civil War there, Along with one of the veterans of the uh, of the mutiny, uh, Thomas Murray, uh, I wrote about well, uh, on the, the selected writings of Liam Mellows. There is, I hope, a useful guide to, to aspects of that period. And then, in terms, I suppose, of war and revolution in the west of Ireland, uh, my own book on Galway. There, what I've tried to kind of um, articulate is is very much the sense of many of these soldiers who fought in World War One. You know, in many ways, their motivations were not as dissimilar from the volunteers as one might imagine. You know, mm. that they're simply doing what they believe is, is good for, for, and right for Ireland and doing what they need to do to survive. So um, I think we need to be careful when we try and, and label these, uh, these people as somehow uh, very different uh, and ending up on different sides. They've, been, they've a lot more in common uh, than might, might seem to be the case, you know. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you can hit me up there on Twitter if you, if you have any questions or, or queries. I'm happy to, to to get back to you. Perfect. Let everybody know what your uh, Twitter handle is. Uh, Connor Mac History, I think at Connor Mac History. Yeah, M A C. Uh, someone tweeted me there with a name like Mac History. It's no wonder you became a historian. But <laughs> my name is McNamara. Actually, she didn't realize. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. fair enough. There you go. <laughs> Brilliant. Okie dog. Dr. Connor McNamara, thanks so much. Thanks, David. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. Dr. Connor McNamara on the Connacht Rangers mutiny that happened in India in June 1920. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that. So thank you so much to Dr. McNamara for taking the time out of his schedule and having the chat with me. If you can, please follow Dr. McNamara on his Twitter page at Dr. Mac History for great historical content too. Once again, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ireland Battles for daily posts on Irish military history. Like I said, we just hit 19,000 followers, so thank you so much to everybody. I'm so glad that you all like what I'm doing, and hopefully, 
we can do a little bit more together soon. You can also become a patron of this podcast at Patreon forward slash The Irish at War, where you can become a patron of this podcast for as little as three euro, essentially a cup of tea or coffee a month. It would help me out to no end. Thank you all once again. And until next time, good luck.